Welcome to the podcast, Phenomenosophy, Episode 9, Beyond the Veil. Today we will discuss ecstatic or mystical phenomena such as psychedelic, religious, spiritual, and psychic experiences. We will explore the consciousness and awareness expansion that individuals have, how those experiences can benefit the individual or sense of meaning and our psyche in profound and healing ways, and the meaningful and positive impact such a phenomena may have on society experiencing a spiritual crisis by exploring the worlds of philosophy, science, psychology, spirituality, and esoteric, esoteric doctrines. Mr. Jinji Thompson, how are you doing today, my friend? Good, Mr. How are you? I am well. I need to, forgot to turn off my monitoring there. I was uh, driving myself crazy <laughs> on the uh, intro because I was hearing my own voice through my headphones. So it was driving me a bit crazy there for a second. Well, I'm so, crazy. I'm driving me crazy. I can't, I can't, it's like I can't speak while I'm getting feedback of my own voice. <laughs> so what do you think about this particular subject? Um, this is one of my favorite type of subjects. Uh, I love to, to look into things that don't necessarily have an agreed upon concrete answer. So beyond the veil is kind of like the, this, this aspect of consciousness that's outside of our regular floodlight awareness. So things that happen in the dream state, things that happen in near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, uh, other types of um, not just like psychedelic, but also psychic, I'll say, mm -hmm. type of experiences where you can move things with your mind, you can access information, you can by locate i mean there's there's a lot of stuff out there in this realm because it's literally limitless um anyway i I just love to talk about this kind of stuff i don't even know where to start with everything we've got lined out here but well that's right that's kind of why i grouped all of these together because i do feel that they are all related um from the ecstatic or mystical experience to the psychedelic or the religious slash spiritual experience that people have that um, that experience or that phenomena we have in those or people have in those experiences of a, an expansion of consciousness and of mind where uh, typically people can experience being beyond the confines of their individual mind. Um, it's almost like exploring the mind of the universe itself. Um, and and like I said, it's not limited to any one of these experiences. It, it kind of shows up in many different ways throughout many different cultures. Uh, I think an interesting, I, you know, we could start with psychedelics because I feel that it's interesting that all cultures um, have in their past and in their traditions 
some type of shamanism that centered around uh, psychedelic um, substances such as mushrooms and ergot and ayahuasca. Ibogaine. Um, Ibogaine. What's the uh, peyote? You know, so there are a lot of... Uh, and what's interesting is this is also related to... There was, there was a connection made between many of these cultures between that and the religious experience. So it was seen as uh, one and the same. And I'm wondering if you go far enough back into when humanity started exploring states of consciousness with psychedelics, if that's indeed where we kind of got religion from. That if maybe <laughs> it was, it, I mean, it, it seems... Well, no, it reminds me of, uh, I think it was Terrence McKenna's stoned ape philosophy, right. where the reason why people evolved so much faster than other animal life, like including apes and, you know, monkeys and stuff like that. That's your water pop. Did you see it? It's that, <laughs> it's that new transparent aluminum. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, basically, he's... he's his theory is that because humans started eating psychedelics, it expanded at least their mental capacity and faculties. Mm -hmm. And so when you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, I mean, that is one major difference between people and the rest of the animal life on the planet is that we have theories and philosophies after life and before life and you know, making sense of dreams and other things like that. that that's religious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, but here's the thing. There are animals that uh, often partake of psychedelic substances as well. Uh, whether or not it has the same effect on them on, that it has on us. On purpose? Uh, on purpose. <laughs> like, uh, um I mean, one of the one of the traditions we have uh, around Christmas time, right? Uh, the the Siberian roots of some of the symbology and traditions that we find in modern day uh, Christmas traditions uh, has a shaman of Siberia uh, carrying around sacks of mushrooms. Uh, that they collect during the winter near the winter solstice and also a tradition of drinking the pee of reindeer because supposedly that really? uh, once the mushrooms have been uh, processed by the body and come out in urine that the psychedelic elements are much more accessible much more intense now i don't know if i'd go that far that's a tough sell do they uh, flavor it <laughs> I don't know. I, it, regardless, I, I'm not drinking reindeer pee. I'm not drinking my own pee. I mean, I've heard there's all kinds of great health benefits to it. But like I there's said, there's a lot of people that do it. It's a tough sell. It's a tough sell. Yeah. Um, I, like, I, I would have to not be able to get it anywhere else and <laughs> really need it in my day to day life. At least. But, yeah, I, I just, I've never it's a tough needed it. Yeah, I, like I said, it might it might make you live forever, uh, and I'm okay with not living forever if I have to drink pee like, every morning. Live forever drinking my pee, or live a hundred years with no pee. That's a 
It's still a tough sell, man. Yeah, it's still a tough sell. So, so with the there, there are a lot of mystical and spiritual traditions that incorporate various types of psychedelics in in their traditions. In fact, there's a book that was just written by Brian C. I'm going to murder his last name. Brian C. Murorescu. Murorescu. And uh, he did all kinds of research, years of research on various traditions, various uh, historical context of the imbibing of religious uh, drink and edibles and things like that, that in their, that may have or did have uh, a psychedelic nature to them. And uh, he found even as, you know, even in the times of uh, Plato, which isn't that long ago, but they had this whole uh, uh, society, um, this sacred kind of society where they would, uh, I want to say it was the Elysium, was the place. I'm probably getting the wrong name there. Uh, but they they found uh, traces of various psychedelics and things like that in the uh, in the leftover pottery and things and and not to mention some of the experiences recorded through history that could easily be connected to ergot, which is something that you get, I believe, when you have some kind of fermentation uh, going wrong in the or going right in the uh, in the making of alcohol or maybe it's just when uh, I can't remember if it was a wheat or a barley or some kind of uh, some kind of a grass that humans use in making food that when it was stored that there was a tendency depending on the conditions in which it was stored that ergot this type of I want to say it's a type of bacteria or something would grow on it and if you ate it you would trip it had a, a, a chemical structure of ergot is very similar to LSD. So let's uh, let's talk for a minute about the experience because I think it goes beyond the psychedelic experience because there are people who practice transcendental meditation and people who don't practice any kind of necessarily uh, intentional way of of you know tapping into a higher state of consciousness who just one day have a kind of a either like you were talking earlier about near death experiences out of body experiences and during these experiences there's the same kind of phenomena where you have this outside of your own mind outside of your limited consciousness kind of a connection to a broader consciousness that you tap into and and I think it's interesting that they're now using uh, psychedelics for treatment of like PTSD and something they've reported with people who use psychedelics that if they it it someone who's like let's say close to dying or dying of some disease or something that if they take a dose of let's say some mushrooms or something all of a sudden the anxiety they have around death is kind of gone. And and I could see that through my own experiences with with uh, psychedelics, in that there is this experience of 
there being a lot more to the world, <laughs> to the universe than meets the eye. Um, and if you were caught up in a belief that the physical reality was the totality of reality, that there was nothing beyond what you could measure with uh, scientific tools, that my experience is that that is kind of left behind with, uh, with a profound uh, consciousness expanding experience, that it becomes clear in the experience um, and depending on what you do, uh, different psychedelics have different effects. Um, but there's even, you know, me, there's even the experience of uh, meeting up with beings that are non-physical and seeing beings that are non-physical. And it's same with the near-death experience where people will have an experience where they're meeting up with, with beings. Uh, that don't have a physical presence in this world. And a lot of times these experiences, whether they start with uh, or whether they're initiated through transcendental meditation, near-death experience, or a psychedelic experience, they have a profound effect on people, the, an individual's outlook. What, do you, what has your experience been around consciousness expansion? So there's a couple of things that I wrote down while you were talking. Um, I I wonder where the anxiety of death comes from. The like the nervousness, the um, the fear, especially. Um, I know a lot of people are uncomfortable with what they don't understand. And what they right. don't understand, it's easy to fear. It's easy to avoid. Um, and something like this, especially seemingly so permanent of someone's living in front of me and they die and they're just like, they don't wake up. Mm -hmm. And their body starts decomposing and coming apart. And they never like hang out with them in, in physical life anymore. Right. But I don't think it's the fear of like, oh no, my body's going to be disintegrating because like i won't be around for that it's not the um you know what happens where do we go i think all that anxiety comes from a belief that will be stuck in like a black box void of experience for the rest of their life they won't be able to see anything they won't be able to hear anything they won't be able to feel anything and and alan watts spoke into that in one of his uh in one of his talks he said it's it's improbable and almost completely certainly not going to happen to be locked in a black box like that for the rest of eternity, because that's not an experience. If you're not seeing, you're not feeling or hearing, there is no experience then to be, um, you know, stuck in. So, <laughs> really so, for is, the rest of so is that a fear of people being stuck with their own thoughts <laughs> for eternity? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I and that, and, I, and that may and that may be fearful for some people if they depending on their thought process and how they think on a regular yeah. basis just being stuck with their thoughts because there is definitely a a, a I don't want to say it's a personality type because it it ranges it's not like there's only certain types of people but what you see within our culture is that people strive for experience, right? They, 
go skydiving. Yeah, they they, of- they 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 go outside of themselves, or they're not. And some people do this in a way to to feel okay, to feel at ease, like the compulsive shoppers, um, and and I guess we could say the compulsive experiencers, right? Where it's like. We need to be doing something. We need to be going somewhere. We need to be up to something. And, and, and that may be that uh, uncomfortable experience of just being with one's thoughts. And yeah, something alone. I wanted to mention in that fear, because I don't think, I think people who fear death, I think more often, rather than a fear of being in a blackness, because I, I believe that a lot of that fear has to do with the tying up of the body with the self in that it's a, it's a fear of for one, the pain and suffering that may come with getting to death, right? Cause it's uh, not everyone gets to go out like a light. So there, you know, people have experienced an extreme amount of suffering. So I think there's an association with, well, I've already experienced, you know, when I, you know, when I broke my leg and when this happened and my appendix ruptured and, you know, these were, these were terribly painful and agonizing experiences. There was a lot of suffering involved. Well, death must be worse than that because you die. <laughs> There's so right. much or suffering. Watching, or watching their grandparents go through like chemo and cancers and other illnesses that right. end in death. Right. Like I and can imagine times, being in pain for months before I die or years even. Right. And there's actually a lot of times, um, especially the elderly, when they when there's a condition that is plaguing them, some kind of chronic condition, oftentimes they actually what ends up happening is they die of starvation and lack of water mm. because it's the disease isn't actually killing them the fact that they can no longer eat food and drink a sufficient amount of water and do anything so there's there's probably a fair amount of suffering that goes along with that because you are still trapped with your thoughts you know you are still conscious so i think a lot of that fear has to do with tying up the self with the body and when you have one of these ecstatic experiences these these self-transcendental experiences you you get a glimpse of life without body and so there's no longer a fear about exactly. life without body because you've that had... was the point i wanted to get into because right. if your mind opens up to a con like opens up to an experience without the body and you're able to still think and function and interact and engage and evolve mm-hmm. it's like what am i stuck attached to the body for so right. when they come back into quote unquote waking consciousness, then it's like, oh well, then what's next after this? I guess mm-hmm. it's not going to be a black box. I guess it's not going to be as bad as I thought. I guess it's not going to be painful because a lot of experiences that come back from this is like a sense of euphoria and coming home and acceptance and love and warmth and like all the good stuff, all the best right. stuff. <laughs> right, right, and that's in most. I'm not going to say all. Um, but most uh, near-death experiences, it's the same. It's the same. It's a very similar yeah. experience, where it's this, you know, uh, in dreams. Yeah, and but it can go both ways in dreams and the near-death yep. experience, um, because yep. I have, uh, and I, I believe this person wrote a book. I don't know who the person was. I wasn't even. I wasn't as soon as I heard 
his take on his experience. I wasn't interested in his experience because I'm like, oh, that probably has more to do with you than anything else. And uh, his the, the the premise of the book was hell is real. I've been there. <laughs> and uh, and so he had a near death experience and it was tremendously negative. And and this I, and actually this speaks into the the good trip versus the bad trip, right? Because uh, and it, back to psychedelics for a moment here, because psychedelics aren't for everyone, and there are very many people who, if they when they try psychedelics, they have a very bad experience. They have a bad trip, right? Dude, and even so people that smoke meat, they're like, ah, I can't do that. It gives me anxiety, right? Like, even that mild amount of right. consciousness influence right. can be very traumatizing for people. Yeah, and that and and there is a psychedelic element to marijuana. Uh, the THCV is a psychoactive substance, so it does have, like you said, a mild, uh, especially if you compare it to like LSD or ayahuasca or something. It's definitely a a much milder experience. However, what's going on for you internally? is going to affect the way you handle that experience, right? And which is the same with the near-death experience. So I would equate that this guy who went to hell had this, you know, had the bad trip. You know, he, and, the, and typically those who have bad trips are in a bad place, um, psychologically speaking. Um, so I'd say they kind of go hand in hand in that. It's also not like it's, it's not absolute. You don't, because you've got this hell, quote unquote hell inside you and you mm -hmm. have a bad trip, doesn't mean every trip is going to be bad. doesn't mean every time you smoke weed, you're going to have anxiety. It's just right. in those moments, wherever you are at is what gets kind of placed under the magnifying lens. Well, and it depends. It depends because some individuals may always have that, whatever that, that is that you're talking about. Always? Why? Because they don't deal with it. It's something, oh. <laughs> it's something that they need to deal with that they don't deal with. And that actually, that's the interesting thing is that the, the South American uh, shaman of Peru, um, and there's actually many other cultures that refer to psychedelic uh, substances as medicine. Okay. So ayahuasca is seen as, is seen as a medicine. And the purging process and everything that occurs is this dealing with the demons that you may carry around with you from past experiences, past traumas, um, inner guilt, whatever it is, you, you're holding on to something you've done to someone else that someone else has done to you or some other uh, traumatic uh, or significant experience. But this is, I'd say, the importance of the guided experience in that a shaman's not going to just give you some ayahuasca and go, okay have a good time let me know how it goes right he's there with you in the, the corner going man he's having a hard time <laughs> right. they're actively actively right. participating they're active. In the whole exactly there it's an active participation where they're singing songs they're playing instruments but they're they're connecting to the people who are having the experience so that they can help them with, so that the medicine can take effect and they can help them through this psychological block that they have. Um, and I think that that's why they're having success treating PTSD with, with mushrooms 
Um, now, an addiction. Yeah, an addiction. And I, I, boga is uh, supposedly amazing for addiction, um, but it's it has to do with how you handle yourself in that expanding consciousness because, yeah. in my experience, everything kind of comes up if you let it. And being able to look at everything and reconcile it, um, whether it means forgiving another, whether it means forgiving yourself, whether it means just letting go of some expectation of the future, because that's it, it all comes up. Fears of what might happen or will happen will come up. Um, depression or sadness or anger about the past will come up. And it's an opportunity in that state of consciousness where it seemingly you have access to everything um, within your own consciousness. Um, things that you thought you'd forgot about a long time ago, you could boop, pluck up and have complete clarity around it. Uh, and, and you can see it in, with new eyes and deal with it in a way that allows you to heal from it. So I don't know how they're, I haven't, re I haven't really looked into these treatments that they're doing for people on PTSD with mushrooms. But I wonder if they're doing this in a guided kind of manner with maybe a psychologist or something along those lines where it's like, okay, microdose and we're going to have, we're going to have a little talk, you know, um, or if it's like, oh, hey, go, go do some mushrooms, have fun. You know, I don't think it's like that. Uh, I, I imagine. I don't it's think it's like Ibogaine. Machine. Yeah. I don't know that it would even be like Ibogaine where they say, Here's way too much. You're going to sit there and go through your shit for 12 hours. And Dude, I'm going to work you hold through on. it. Hold on. Let me tell you about Ibogaine for a second because I did Ibogaine. 12 hours? <laughs> yeah. 12 hours would be nothing. I went for five days. Jeez. Okay. Now, now, it wasn't an intense experience the entire five days. But, I mean, it was intense for the – I don't even know. You know, it's time and, time and space kind of get, mis, you know, kind of – expand and contract and so your sense of time you kind of get lost in but i know there are several days passed and i mean into like you know day two day three what it, it it was just still there the presence of the effects of it um were still there and it wasn't like something like you know mushrooms within eight to twelve hours pretty much all of it's gone You're, there's no lingering effects right. This had lingering effects for days. Now, it might be I did a lot too much. <laughs> I don't know because um, uh, I got my hands on it and just was, you know, kind of went for it. And uh, considering myself a heavy head with my experiences with like ayahuasca and things like that, I was like, oh, well, you know, I can handle so much of these other things that I could probably handle a lot of this. And so I probably went far and beyond the recommended dosage. However, it wasn't actually as insightful for me or as profound as experiences I've had with ayahuasca and mushrooms and things like that. I mean, it was just a, I don't know, even at its most intense, and this may be, again, I'm speaking about my personal experience. I don't know the kinds of experiences other people have on iboga. It is like you're elevated out of your body, but not not like you're flying from planet to planet kind of <laughs> elevation out of your body. You know what I mean? You're still, you're still here. You're still pretty grounded. And, and it's, I, and I guess that might be why it's so effective with addiction in that the experience is lasting. 
you know, and so you're not, you're kind, you're kind of above your everyday consciousness, but not so far out that you can't, you know, feed yourself and take care of yourself and, you know, drink water. And, you know, you're, you're, you still have enough of a mind in this world, but you have none of the physical, like demands on your body or, or insecurities in your body or uneasiness in your body that usually comes with physical addiction, right? So like when you're physically addicted to something, there's an uneasiness within you that you feed with alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, whatever it is, heroin, right? You feed that uneasiness within you and then it goes away. Whereas that iboga, it's like that uneasiness is gone. And depending on the dose, it could be gone for a while. And so there's no need to feed that uneasiness within you. And perhaps it allows the body to break that physical addiction. So when you do come out of the experience, the, the physical addiction is gone because your body kind of went through letting go of the physical dependency, right? I do remember even fasting did that for me. Like if mm-hmm. I ever wanted to quit smoking cigarettes, you know, I forget when I was doing this, maybe like five or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Actually, the first time I quit smoking cigarettes was for three years. And the only way I did it was I did the master cleanse. Right. And I did it for two weeks straight, 14 days. I didn't have a single craving during that entire time. And I've done that same thing with the water fast and juice fasts and raw diets and stuff like that, where like my body goes into like preservation mode. Mm-hmm. And so it's like only what's necessary. And those things are obviously not necessary. Cigarettes are not necessary to live right. and to thrive. And so it was as if it just kind of put it on the side. But as soon as I started eating again, as soon as I started, you know, my normal life routines again, then all of a sudden the the addiction would come back up. But it wouldn't be nearly as strong because I had been off it for two weeks. Right. And probably clearing out a lot of the nicotine in my blood. So right. I couldn't and imagine doing this if it just cuts it out. Well, here here's the thing. Ahead, nicotine, uh, nicotine will calm an uneasiness within your body correct yeah that was my experience okay so if you start eating foods that create an uneasiness within your body like if you eat a lot of sugars a lot of carbohydrates that create that kind of uneasiness within the body your mental tendency even though you may not no longer have a physical addiction to nicotine you know that coping with that uneasiness within the body. And again, this isn't necessarily something that happens on a conscious level, but coping with that uneasiness, that physical uneasiness for someone who's used nicotine for years to do that would be reaching for a cigarette or someone who's used alcohol to do that. It'd be a very easy way to go back and grab alcohol because, you know, once the alcohol's taken effect, that uneasiness goes away. Um, I've noticed that with diet that, uh, that like, because I, I eat a really high fat, high protein diet and I very, eat very low carbs. And I notice that, but I love carbs. I mean, come on, donuts, like they're my favorite. So every <laughs> once in a while I go big and I go and, you know, I'll get some donuts or I'll get some apple pie, Dutch apple pie or something like that. And that uneasiness comes into my body and I'm just like, oh man, like, it's worth it. <laughs> There's no way I'm giving up. There's no way I'm giving up donuts and, and uh, apple pie or nothing. 
I know beforehand I will be experiencing that physical uneasiness within my body because of the sugars and everything that, and how they're affecting me in that moment. It's not lasting, you know, but I can see how the that, food coma. Yeah. It, well, yeah, the food coma is definitely a thing too. I notice when I eat, you know, high fat, high protein diet, I can eat and still function fairly well. But if I sit down and eat and I do this, I do do this. This isn't an exaggeration. I will eat half of half of a Dutch apple pie. And I'm not talking about some little packaged pie you get. I'm talking about an entire pie. I can eat half of a pie. Actually, I can eat an entire pie and I have eaten an entire pie. I try not to make it a regular practice, but it, it's totally doable, totally possible. I can eat an entire pie. I can eat an entire pizza. I can eat an entire dozen donuts. I don't do it often. <laughs> and I, and I know that, the, yeah, I know the physical effects it has on me. And I know when I'm doing it that I'm going to regret it <laughs> physically. Um, but that it just tastes so good at the time. So that, so for me, that's, that's a, the moderation, uh, in that I only do it once in a rare while, as opposed to eating like that all the time. Uh, so it's, it's a way of dealing with that uneasiness. So the iboga kind of takes you into that state of not experiencing any kind of dis-ease within the body. For me, it was for days, you know, whereas I had that same experience on, you know, mushrooms, ayahuasca stuff where it's like that tension in the body is gone. You know, that, uh, anything that, that, uh, any uncomfortability physically, and even mentally for me is just gone. Um, but with like ayahuasca and mushrooms and things like that, it's for, you know, hours, hours, <laughs> not, not days, you know? So I actually just, I had that experience of the last time I did mushrooms where I, I get these headaches and I've been like on this path to figuring out where they come from. And I thought it was smoking. So I thought it was drinking. I thought it was fasting. I thought it was all these things. Um, but what I found is I started to feel this migraine come on right as I had planned to like spend the afternoon eating some mushrooms and I ate them. I was like, Oh my God, please don't let me have a headache while I'm, <laughs> I'm on this trip. And as soon as I felt it come on, I could literally feel muscle by muscle letting go and relaxing and going into that state. And by the time, like the mushrooms fully kicked in all the tension was completely released in my body and i had no uneasiness at all i right. could like i could do anything i thought that would normally like agitate or make the headache worse no mm -hmm. problems and so i started noticing in my own life where i hold tension throughout the day and where i can intentionally relax and let go and i, I tell you it's like literally gotten rid of headaches because of mm -hmm. the tent, even just standing, I noticed that I'll be like extended like this. I'm like, I don't have to do that. I can relax and sit down and, oh, I'm sitting like this. I wonder what happens if I just straighten my neck out and, oh, I'm, I'm tense over here and I let it go. It's been amazing, dude. Like right. the amount of tension an individual holds. And obviously it was a lot worse when I was smoking cigarettes mm -hmm. because the uneasiness would come on and it would just go on to the pile of tension that I would hold in my body and right. make it all worse. So like while it wasn't directly smoking that was giving me headaches, 
it was absolutely contributing to it. Right. Not not the smoking, but the not smoking. <laughs> the, right. the uneasiness that came in between the smoking sessions. Right. So it's a the whole body, man, and the mind just mm-hmm. holding tension like that. These things can really open up a space that psychologically you can go into that your whole body follows and will relax. It's I think that's really what gets into the 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 PTSD and the addiction recovery and all of that stuff that gets worked out is you get to a place where you can deal with things one on one, not with the mound of shit on your shoulders. Right. So tell yeah. me about your relationship with spirit because I I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of bring in some of the experiences you've had like through the Monroe Institute and things like that. Tell me, give me a a short kind of overview of your of Jinji's spirituality and its connection to these types of experiences. <laughs> um and I and I mean all the types from the psychic experiences that you've had mystical experiences, religious or spiritual experiences, um, and your kind of your, your philosophy on spirituality or the nature of life in the universe. <laughs> so the purpose and meaning. I, I feel like there's a, a couple of points that I could make that would really help it. Um, I guess, click and make sense for people. And one of the first, th- uh, not one of the first things, but maybe on day two or three of the first Monroe uh, Institute workshop called the Gateway Voyage, that's their prerequisite course for all the other cool stuff like spoon bending and stuff. Um, one of the one of the first things that we do on one of those later on days is they showed us this um, this YouTube video that was I forget the lady's name. Uh, Jane, I don't remember. I'm going to butcher it if I try to guess it. Um, anyway, she had uh, something like an aneurysm or something in her brain, where yeah. when it when it when it erupted or whatever was happening, it shut off the left side of her brain. And when her left side of her brain went down, she lost all linear egoic thought, and all that she was left with was this like euphoric. We are all one. She couldn't tell the difference between the atoms of her hand and the atoms of the wall and just this floating in this like space. And then her left brain kicks back on. She goes, oh, my God, I'm having a stroke or something. <laughs> so she was like running to the phone to grab the phone and dial 911. And she grabs it and goes, numbers, we're all one. And she's back into this ecstasy space. <laughs> and so what they talk about is the difference between left brain and right brain, which I think is not entirely accurate, but it's easy for people that even they don't, even people that don't fully believe in mystic stuff to Mm -hmm. be able to, you know, like every scientist believes that there are two hemispheres of a brain and the tech that they use is called hemisync, which is short for hemispheric uh, synchronization. Synchronization. So it's meant (laughs) is to have the uh, the whole mind operating as one unit as opposed to like two different halves. So they draw this distinction between left brain and right brain and left brain being all linear, separated, egoic type of thought and right brain being uh, 
this uh, subconscious type of activity, some subconscious type of awareness, where they say that's the aspect of the brain that beats your heart and operates your glands and stuff like that. And the left brain is what, you know, books your calendar events and drives you down the road and makes sure you're on time and writes a grocery list and all of those things. And so their whole goal is to not, which is traditionally kind of the goal of some meditations like transcendental meditation is to shut off the left brain and get rid of it. Ego, right? Is the Monroe Institute has a different approach where they just want to have the left brain in the passenger seat rather than the driver's seat. And almost just watch instead of identifying and explaining and driving the car. So in that sense, I think everybody can kind of get an idea as to what this other side of experience is. The side of you that's growing your hair and, you know, I don't know, all that stuff. Beating, <laughs> beating your heart. Beating your heart. Beating your heart. Filtering your blood. But also the aspect of you that you dream with. It's usually not egoic left brain type of actions. It's, oh, how did I get here? And then your brain's trying to figure out what's going on and who you're dealing with and what's, you know, where I go next. It's it's in the passenger seat. It's observing. It's not driving. And then the side of you that uh, has all these other abilities to go out of body, to bend spoons, to have an, uh, like a near-death experience or to when you get on mushrooms and, and all these other things, it's a way for your left brain to take a step back. It almost inhibits it from driving or at least it evens the playing field. out. So looking at it in that way, I think is extremely rational. And again, it's not the entire story, um, but it's a good starting point to kind of understand where all of these connect. Now there's this other guy that I've, been studying his work lately and everyone calls him rupa r-u-p-a but i don't remember how to say his entire name um, <laughs> from, it's from new zealand <laughs> anyway he uh he makes a, a pretty interesting point with with psychedelics being the exact same type of state like consciousness state that one can get into but that people are rarely productive with. Right. Like getting into an accidental out-of-body experience and being like, what's happening? You eat some mushrooms and you're like, oh, I'm just going to chill here and feel all the warmth and the fuzzies and enjoy the show. Like no one's getting into those states to be productive. And what he, he claims is that you can be incredibly productive there. Mm -hmm. And so well, some of the people probably... that are using Ibogaine productively are doing that. But it's well, generally like a microdosing. Party. Yeah. It, well, yeah. It's, I think that that's why the that whole microdosing uh, practice has become so prevalent in society and our culture today is that you can be extraordinarily functional and productive uh, with certain dosage once you once you go beyond a certain dosage uh you're kind of done for the day <laughs> don't plan unless on you anything. learn how to unless you learn how to navigate in those spaces which is what he was talking about right to take a normal like hallucinogenic like you're done for the day type of dose and being productive there because yeah well, you're not going okay, to be able to be like i'm going to okay, function but 
Yeah, but define productive. Like if if productive, Doing if your job, let's say if your job is to interact with people and to explain some and explain, let's say some technical details to them, I don't think you're going to be very functional or productive. Uh, because in my experience, like if I take a heavy dose of mushrooms, right, my mind is moving at a rate that my mouth could never keep up with. So all of a sudden, like nothing comes out of my mouth making sense, you know, especially if you're peaking or something where it's just like, yeah, no, I don't even want to talk right now. (laughs) I'm just going to let this experience happen and I'm not going to try to vocalize or explain it or articulate it in any way. Cause as soon as, cause I've, I've watched, I've watched it. I've watched people try to articulate their experiences when they're peaking on mushrooms. And it's, it's hilarious because it doesn't, you can't articulate it. And you're here. You are, you're like, you had the thought to articulate it and you, it was a good idea at the time and you started articulating it. And now you are somewhere completely different. You don't, you no longer even have any interest in this articulating the experience you know, idea you have. And all, and all that comes out is the schnozberries taste like schnozberries. And, and you, you thought it was profound. <laughs> <laughs> the most profound thing you've ever said. Yeah. So like being productive doesn't necessarily mean going to work. Right. And that's what I wanted to make other... the distinction. I, I wanted to make yeah. that distinction because yes, I think that there's probably in, from the standpoint of being human, there may be nothing more productive than for people to drop a dose of some psychedelic um, just by the state of consciousness that you get to enter and explore and how you're able to bring up and deal with you know, past traumas and things like that. I think it's profoundly effective and beneficial for human beings. Yeah. So for, for example, in, with, in the therapeutic use of Ibogaine, like you were talking about, to be productive with it could be to face what's going on psychologically within yourself to heal any type of issue with addiction, to heal any traumas that you may still be holding on to or anything you need to forgive. Those are things that you can productively approach in those states. Now there's, there's like, okay, here's a really good example. I, at the Monroe Institute, in my... Um, in the gateway voyage, the first course that I did, I had an experience where I accidentally ended up in this like all knowing state. I could actually predict and, and, and tell people before it happened, who was going to speak, what they were going to say and in what order. And, you know, it was overwhelming. I knew my role in growing grass in holding atoms together in shining the sun in spinning planets and orbits I understood as if it was like, like, oh, yeah, I know that time's going to keep flowing. I know that in five minutes from now, I'm going to you know, still be sitting here having this phone call. It was that much of a certainty. I could see it. I could expect it. And it's just like I didn't have to try to guess or understand or know or anything. It was just I could feel it as if it was an extension of myself. Mm-hmm. Now. In that state, I was just like, oh, my God, what's happening? I can't believe I know all these things, and this is overwhelming. And I was just trying to, like, put the lid back on, basically. And had I even been present enough 
to question, like, I wonder what I can do in this state. I wonder what happens if I look at tomorrow or the next year or like what stocks should I invest in? Like none of those <laughs> things came to mind for me. It was just this like, whoa, blissful. I know everything that's happening and I'm in just this state of gratitude. And like if I had approached it with a, with a desire to be productive or even curious, like I'd have had conversations with plants and animals. I would have um, – I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. And that's the point. When I heard this guy talking about going into these states with an intent to be productive or at least curious, it just kind of opened the door for me. Being like, this is something that people usually go to for vacation, not for any actual purpose. Yeah, what do we, you think could call it, we could call that lucid tripping. <laughs> <laughs> right? Lucid tripping. Like, like lucid dreaming. Uh, lucid tripping is uh, being intentional, right? You know you're going to put yourself in that state or have that experience. And the experience you're specifically talking about had nothing to do with psychedelics. That's what's interesting. Right. You know? But I've actually gone into like mushrooms and intentionally went into like learn something and had incredible results. Like I'm going to listen to this guided meditation while I'm doing this or I'm going to investigate you know, this experience or this pattern or something in my life. Mm -hmm. And I've had those doors just open up as if they weren't locked and they were right. there for me to investigate. Sorry, I got a fruit fly <laughs> like craving the moisture <laughs> in my eyes or something. I'll just keep so, waving at you. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the, uh, so what is, uh, having had these experiences because you've had these experiences you've had them with the aid of sacrament or psychedelics you've had them without you in this in transcendental type type of activities and meditations and you've had them outside of any intention of having them them just kind of falling on you so what is your having had all these different experiences at all these different points in the, the consciousness that you experience during it as, as a part of this phenomena, what is your spiritual outlook? How do you see the, the spiritual nature or what do you see as the spiritual nature of the, of the universe, of, of the totality? I've not really put together a concrete thought or formation of thought for this, mm -hmm. but fundamentally, I think it's it's the duality, the physical and the non-physical, which are really two sides of the same thing. Um, and understanding that you have conscious and unconscious, but they're both still your mind, um, is... This is, to me, the foundational aspect of what I believe spiritually. So if I'm consciously, physically with my brain, thinking like, this is what, you know, the patterns I'm in, or these are the beliefs that I hold, or whatever, and then I'm unconsciously embodying them and, you know, reacting and constructing my life accordingly, they're just different ways that I function. And 
in my experience, almost every single person on the planet has grown that left side, physical side, egoic side to the point where they're not even aware that they have a subconscious. Now, logically, they'll be like, uh, of course I have a subconscious. Like, that's why I breathe when I stop trying to breathe. That's why my heart beats. That's why my hair grows and my blood pumps and all these things. But that's where it ends. Like, even in, in medical science, there's no understanding or no intentional, like, labeling and pointing fingers to the mechanisms that operate the body in that. And it really, to me, it's not subconscious. It's like the super conscious, like our egoic awareness and focused consciousness exists within this broader spectrum. So it's like, like the yin and the yang concept where there's a little bit of yin inside the yang. There's a bit of yang inside the yin. It's like the focused awareness is that dot inside of the bigger aspect of it. Okay. And it's I feel, vice versa. Yeah, I feel like you're giving me a clinical explanation of your spirituality. Okay, it's just fundamental, basically. Yeah, well, they both st- exist. St- don't we're all lopsided. Exp- don't don't try to explain <laughs> it to me in a scientific way. I what, hey, what do you from want? your from the experiences you've had, what is your take on the nature of you as a being and the nature of the universe? What's going to happen when you die, Jimmy? I would say, <laughs> <laughs> you want to know about afterlife. And no, um, I want to know about life, the, the totality of it. You know, I want to know about... So that's the, the point essence. that I'm getting I don't, I don't. I feel like you were getting into this clinical explanation of, I guess, of spirituality, which I believe could be left outside the conversation for now. Not that there's not a use for that conversation. But it's it's kind of the mental masturbation that I see happening in science and philosophy, and it's let's let go of trying to put it into any um, school of thought for a moment, and just why why do you live your life by the principles you live your life by? What are the principles you live your life by? Like that's that's an important question, and and it speaks to a spiritual aspect of you. Because I know you're not a religious person. So not a lot of, let's say you were religious or some people, typically people who are religious, they live their lives by their moral code, by their principles, because there's this horrible consequence if they don't, right? And and I feel like that there's a a much higher level of approaching uh, principles and morals and ethics and virtues as a from a place rather than oh well there's consequences if i don't well then it takes a more sophisticated approach to spirituality to live your life intentionally from a set of principles and virtues so i want to under, i want to understand your sophisticated understanding of your spiritual nature that has you choose to live your life from certain principles morals why you embody certain virtues okay so fundamentally it's because nothing is truly separate to be cruel to somebody else is to be cruel to myself and man i'm I'm fighting so hard not to go scientific because i want to explain how duality leans back up yeah, to no. like the oneness of shit 
We'll, so, we'll save that for another show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so if, imagine, imagine trying to have this conversation on mushrooms. <laughs> that wouldn't happen. I mean, it would over hours and hours and hours. Right. So, you know, I am going to throw a little bit of, of this in here because the fundamental structure that I see is that at my individual consciousness awareness, I have physical and non-physical. And as those break down and you notice they're left and rights of the same oneness, two sides of the same coin, then once you move beyond my individual consciousness, my individual consciousness and yours are two different sides to the same coin. And eventually you keep leading back to all these polarities to this oneness where there is no differentiation at a certain level of consciousness between me and this cup or you or the microphone and the, the electricity it's all aspects of the same one thing. So for me, understanding the nature of that, it doesn't make sense to, to steal or to kill or to lie or any of those other things that we would say like would be on the, the list of commandments or that would be looked down upon socially. Um, I, I, I do things that I feel are... effective and productive and like common sense understanding the true nature of what what is that if everything is all different aspects of the same thing it'd be like having one arm fighting against the other arm everybody suffers and since i don't want to see suffering in the world because i don't want to see victimness in the world because i don't want to see anger or violence or any of those things i choose not to participate and i choose to participate in the things that i do want to see which could be love and connection and support and compassion those things to me are important and um you know i've, I've actually had a lot several conversations like this with my girlfriend she's you know we'll talk about like donald trump there's a lot of people in this country especially like minorities that freaking hate that guy and they'll look at me and they're like what do you think about it and i'm like yeah he is what he is it is what it is are you going to vote for him no because that's not something i choose to give my energy to and to perpetuate and to contribute to in the world like and that's not just him i've got bigger views on bigger systems like the entire political system isn't something i feel I would want to give all my energy into, or at least be committed to being as educated as some people are, or as engaged as some people are. And so it's not necessarily like a, I'm for this and I'm against this. It's a spectrum for me of how much of myself do I want to contribute to what I see and experience in the world. And so that's based my, my basic metric for the morals that I hold, the ethics, my thought processes. Um, I don't base it on any actual religion. And I would say that whatever God is would be that state of oneness that is undifferentiated consciousness, where there is no difference between me and God. There's just us, the relationship. There's just, you know, the bigger picture. Does that make sense? 
Mm. Somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting to go that deep today in this, but cool. Well, and there, there's, and there was a reason I wanted you to was because in relation to these experiences, right, these ecstatic, these transcendental experiences, regardless of where they come from, whether they come from the psychedelics or meditation or anything else. <clears throat> what I want, what I really want to get at is how have these types of experiences affected like your, the, let's say your purpose in life, the meaning you give life and the principles and morals, ethics, virtues that you choose to embody. How have those experiences, these expanded consciousness experiences affected that because what i'm what i'm looking at is right now i look out at the world and i'm seeing in my assessment what i would consider a spiritual crisis in that there is a letting go of what i would what i would consider fundamental principles for a functioning society fundamental morals fundamental ethics that if you don't embrace them and if you don't choose to embody them that you have a breakdown in societies and cultures and families and everything else and i see in in again my assessment is that there's a tremendous amount of uh, letting go of, of foregoing all of these you know what i feel are are principles that from my standpoint and probably from yours as well it's like well of course you embody that principle of forgiveness that's not an of course for most people. Yeah. And of course, compassion is a place I sit in. And of course, you know, authenticity and honesty are important. So I, what, I, what I'm getting at is that in having these expanded consciousness experiences, whether they're a spiritual, mystical, religious, uh, transcendental, is that something that you feel has contributed to your, I, I, I'm going to say your spirituality, certainty in these principles, in these morals, mm -hmm. in these ethics, or a, a stronger connection to them? They, they definitely have, um, especially the work at the Monroe Institute and other like psychic development or, 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 um, meditation even type of work because mm -hmm. they've led me to the understanding that I have today. Like without the experience of, of knowing all that is, I wouldn't really, I'd still be guessing without mm -hmm. the experience of like feeling through somebody else or right thinking somebody else's thoughts or you know the the blending of of people then mm -hmm. i wouldn't really have an experience of the the separation isn't as concrete as we may imagine and that's led me to understanding more uh more different like more better different uh different type of of science scientific models um like sympathetic vibratory physics that mm -hmm. explain the nature of these phenomena without 
those experiences, I would have never pursued the reasoning that made it make sense or the models that can account for them. Um, like perfect example, the placebo effect. Science still isn't really like, oh, we'll check it out. We can leverage this and make the placebo effect operate even better. And we can get these different results and stuff. It's just like, oh, well, that's just, you know, uh, an aspect of error that we have to account for. That placebo right. effect is going to account for this much. And it's like, that's a very real, like, what was it? The study of, like, men who took it to regrow hair. And, like... Mm -hmm. The placebo effect, like twenty percent of them regrew a full head of hair. <laughs> They're like, "Oops, yeah. they're sugar pills," yeah. but like that can be used. That can be leveraged. That's powerful. Oh, absolutely. And the, and the, and the placebo effect, I think, is a great example in that it has everything to do with the individual's intention and expectation, and really like their open openness, their open mindedness. Because if, if someone who you consider to have no credibility hands you the sugar pill, it'll probably have a lot less effect. Like that would be a great experiment. <laughs> have, right? right. Have, uh, have uh, Dr. Fauci walk in with a sugar pill and have Donald Trump walk in with a sugar pill. And the subject, the, the patient is a diehard Democrat, right? And, uh, and have, have them say the same thing. This will cure you of this disease. This is a magic cure for this disease, right? Chances are you take it from this person that you give no credibility to, that you have uh, no, no sense of, of uh, authority in their opinion. It'll have probably little to no effect. But if you hold someone up on a pedestal like, wow, you know, the Dalai Lama just gave me this medallion and it's going to, you know, make me wealthy and loving and cure my heart disease. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and, and because you hold, you hold the Dalai Lama as this great and wonderful being. And so you, his words and his actions, you have all the merit and, and authority you, you could ever give them. And so it's the, the really the, the person themselves that, the individual who's receiving and who holds that person in such high esteem and then therefore holds the trinket or sugar pill or whatever in such high esteem that it has the effect that it has. I would even right? say that it's the belief in it that it has that effect. And the more credible the source, the higher level of belief. Like this is what right. happens. I forget who it was, but I was there was somebody who actually went through and studied the spontaneous healings that happen at like at church. And they're going right. through all the dances and the guy who's like taking his coat and hitting people across the face like, and you're cured and you're cured and oh, you can walk again, hitting people in the faces and stuff <laughs> and them actually being able to get up and then walk right. afterwards. Right. And it's like, what the hell is happening? This person hasn't walked in 20 years since this car accident. And all of a sudden he gets slapped across the face by this priest guy. And now he's walking. Right. It's like this diehard to your core belief that like this high figure of God exists and that all of the energy and the magic in the world effectively does work and miracles do happen. And this guy is going to bestow this upon me mm -hmm. without all of those dominoes lined up, getting hit across the face isn't going to do Jack. Right. In fact, 
if you were asleep and hit you across the face, you woke up like, what the hell? <laughs> Nothing would happen. But right. because you're there and you're dancing and you got everything moving inside your body and your mind, your whole consciousness, all of a sudden, this is now an impactful situation that can literally heal decades of trauma. Right. Yeah. And that, and that, if you're sitting in the audience, you're like, man, this guy is a quack. Guarantee you the slap <laughs> to the face with the jacket ain't going to do nothing. Or you're like, I got to get my mom in here. She's been, she hasn't walked in 30 years. Now that's but interesting. It's, just... it's that's, that's actually an interesting little segue to a part that I wasn't even sure we would bring up in this conversation, but I do feel <laughs> it's uh it's significant is ritual, right? So all, all religions have ritual and where did ritual come from? You know, why does it have ritual and what's the importance and what's the significance and what's the power that we give it? And I think you spoke right into that with the belief of it. Um, and there is definitely a channeling, an energetic channeling that's occurring, right? So, you know, walking around, doing certain things, incense and burning something and whatever it is. So there's all different ideologies have all their different rituals, but it creates a, a meaningful connection between the participant and you could call it the, their higher selves, the God, the, uh, the oneness of all, whatever it is, there's, there's these practices, you know, um, like if I look at the ritual, like something I'm familiar with, uh, my family's Catholic, so they have Catholic ritual in the Catholic church. And, you know, there's this cool little part of the ritual where you kind of give blessings to all the people around you. Right. And that is, I think that is such a fundamentally powerful practice within a society or culture to like, regardless of who's near you, because it's not like you necessarily know any of the people around you, but to, you know, for a moment, drop into a place of vulnerability and authenticity and compassion and love and to like share this with people, right? To like, you know, to, to give, their, your, give your blessings to them and to wish them well and to look them in the eyes and to, you know, shake their hand or hug them or whatever it is. This is a profoundly powerful practice, especially in creating some kind of cohesion or social fabric. And, and again, so this is one of the things I, that I feel like I wanted to bring this conversation around to was that what I'm calling a spiritual crisis, right? And it's interesting because now we're living out this social distancing reality where no, 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 you can't touch people. You can't get within six feet of people. <laughs> and you can't show them your face and you can't let them see your face. And so I feel that there's something tremendously damaging to the social fabric of our society if we can't touch each other, we can't get near each other, and we can't see each other's faces, right? Um, For sure. sure. And, and not that this is a new phenomenon. Well, I mean, yeah, the social distancing and masking, that's a new phenomenon, but it's something that's already been, it, it's, it's been showing up in society, this disconnect between us between individuals and things like that, where because their religion isn't necessarily a big part of our culture and society anymore. Now there's a good percentage of people who still do attend rituals and religious services and have a belief and 
attempt to live their life by a certain set of principles and morals and ethics and things like that. I would say a majority of people are not. Even people who may call themselves like, yeah, I'm a Christian or I'm a whatever, um, they're, they aren't necessarily living their lives by these principles. And they aren't necessarily going through these the types of, of ritual or process that brings people together, that, that, that has people um, forgive each other and bless each other and love each other. So this is these are no longer practices that are that a, a large percentage of the population is participating in, um, and not that this that I'm not saying that that religion is a solution to the spiritual crisis. So I'm not saying that this is a a crisis of religion. Um, I, I don't think that it's necessarily religion that people need, but it is definitely a connection to the spiritual nature of life to spirit to those higher virtues and principles religion is an access point to that it is sure. it absolutely is but i mean because of the dogmatic aspects of it people are throwing the baby out with the bathwater right it's like well yeah there's no way the world is six thousand years old therefore this is all bullshit like as opposed to looking at it as, like from the standpoint of well like what's the you know what's the value in the religion you know as opposed to like yeah there may be some factual elements that aren't exactly on par you know that we can scientifically prove aren't so but there's 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 something that speaks to social cohesion social fabric to to something that benefits people living in a society Again, I'm not saying we need to adopt one religion or another. In fact, I think that's the problem is because now it's it's become war of religions where it's like, well, there's now my religion's right and your religion's wrong. So you have, you know, Islam and Christianity at, at odds with each other because one group believes they're right and the other group believes they're right, and both groups believe that the other is wrong. And and I I feel that if we can if people can have an experience, you know, whether it be through transcendental meditation or prayer or, or just accidentally, because I know the ecstatic experience or the mystical experience can just occur for a person in a moment of, uh, of awareness and realization. But I feel that by having those experiences, it allows people to be open to and see the importance of living your life by a certain set of principles, by a certain set of morals and ethics, and why these are important, not only for you as an individual, but they're important for your family. They're important for your, um, for your, your, your town, your, your community, for your society at large. You know, it's, it's something that i Again, this is this is my assessment, and I make this assessment based on what I'm seeing, not only in the streets but in the media. Is there's this, you know, like the fact that they're, you know, I've I've heard uh, psychologists speaking on TED talks, and really what they're leaning into is the normalization of of pedophilia. You know, like oh, they're not doing anything wrong. They just, you know, they identify as a younger person, and and you know, as a clover gender. 
Yeah, and 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 it's like so this the whole morals and ethics is kind of just being thrown out, but and not again, not by everyone, not by all parts of society, but you see it, you know, in that movie, uh, Cuties, that was on Netflix. It was like sexualizing eleven-year-old girls. Oh, I heard yeah. about something like that. And there's, yeah. there's there's being canceled, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's been canceled. I, I it they there no, was on a, Twitter. Oh, <laughs> it's being canceled on Twitter. Oh, has it really? No, I mean, okay. So I'm talking about like the cancel, quote unquote, cancel culture. Oh, cancel culture as something separate. Right. So like everyone on Twitter is like, "F this, cancel cuties." Hashtag cancel cuties. We don't want to be sexualizing nine year old girls or whatever else. Like we're normalizing pedophilia in this, and that is the rational of the give. Right. And everybody wants it pulled. I'm right. sure Netflix is loving the publicity, but yeah, well, not everyone. There were a lot of people defending it. There were a lot of people mm-hmm. defending it, and that's where I'm saying that there's a spiritual crisis. That's what. Is that's like where a... my, why. That's how I ground my assessment in there being a spiritual crisis. Is when you have thousands of people standing up to defend the sexualization of little girls. You know, uh, there's a problem there. <laughs> there's a problem there. Um, and again, that's not the only, that's not the only evidence I have for backing my assessment. But what I, what I wanted to get at in this conversation was, for one, I wanted to explore the nature of these experiences and what they're like and what we can gain from them, but also how experiences like this may be medicinal, healing in a way that can uh bring people back to a place of embracing, you know, principle, principles and, and, and morals and ethics and virtues that would have us as individuals and as a society thrive. So kind of where I'm one of the, I want to add this on top of what you said, is that fundamentally, Everybody has an aspect of their awareness, which will be conscious or unconscious. Everybody has an aspect of their awareness that recognizes the oneness that all of this comes from. And without putting a title to it, that is a shared experience between not only people, but everything else. And if we're talking logically, where the dissonance is being created, like I, I was just talking about that lady on YouTube talking about having her left brain shut down. And when it did shut down, she could see the oneness. She couldn't tell the difference between anything, herself or anything outside of herself. Um, if the dissonance is coming from logic, left brain, ego, which is, uh, I use ego differently. So just kind of take that with a grain of salt. Um, I use ego to explain like the entire left brain, you know, conscious focus, floodlight, whatever, not floodlight, but spotlight. Anyway, if we're talking about that, we can literally prove that there is no differentiation between things by almost any, any direction or any I mean, path well, or any I, modality that we get into. I, and I, if I, feel you go like, down, I feel like, I feel like this is a woo woo point of conversation that loses people. And I, the, we're all one, man. And like even quantum right. science is, I mean, yeah, it, it, quant, if, if you look at quantum physics, you could say, yep, there's really no 
there's no separation from one thing to another. You know that. But even if you go into sports, like talk to Michael Jordan, he I'm sure he's had experiences of the entire team operating as one unit where they didn't have to think where people were or what they were doing. No, I've, had, just, that ex- yeah, I've had that experience on a high school team. So I know professional yeah. sports teams have had that experience. So I'm saying no, even like for me as a musician, that's something that happens in bands. That's something that happens in sports. That's something that happens in science. Like no matter what modality you go down, you can get to a similar type of experience or understanding. So really the point I'm getting to is that people are choosing not to go far enough to reach that realization. They're choosing yeah, to stay here, in this space of the Here's growth. the thing. Can you? Because it's not that it's not universal. You can ask Michael Jordan, he could say, like, yeah, it was like we were all one unit. But you ask another guy who was on the court with him at, at the same game, he's like, Yeah, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. I didn't experience that. You know what I mean? So it there is a I don't want to say there's a, a, a set type of consciousness, but there is a place where you get to consciously that you can, ta- you can kind of feel, have, have that experience, that that phenomenon becomes real for you. And it's not necessarily that a person that, you, that is near you or around you during this experience is going to have the same experience. Now, I have had that. Where And again, this was one of those experiences that involved no psychedelics or anything, and it was me and another person, and we both kind of dropped out of physical reality for a moment. We were surrounded, and we both had the same experiences. This was what was so phenomenal about it. And, and that was such a profound experience in, again, in knowing ourselves as bigger than what we think we are, knowing ourselves as... Uh, more significant or more substantial than the physicalness, you know, than the physical body that the, that the, our consciousness is where really where, where so much of our power lies and where so much of our substance of being lives or lives about um, because it, it is more profound than any physical experience you can have right and once you've had once you once you've had more and more of these experiences it starts to connect you to that more substantial side of life or that more substantial side of yourself where whereby those principles and virtues and things do appear to be much more important because of the connection that you experience between everything because of I see the, what you mean. the substance of, 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 of your true nature, right? If all we were, were these meat machines that walk around stuffing shit in one end, shitting it out the other end and reproducing, like that's not that great a thing. Why must it go on? That, you know, things must go in one end of the tube, must come out the other end of the tube, and we must make more tubes, right? Like, that's, there's no significance to life at all. If, if you really see yourself that way, and if you really see the nature of human beings that way, then why do we care if we destroy the entire planet? All the tubes that are shoving shit in one end and shitting it out the other end will continue to sh- 
take shit in one end and shit it out the other end? Like, cause that's extremely important, right? For us to eat and shit and sleep and reproduce. That's so important. No, it's not. If all you see is the physical side of life and all you see is this physical being and, and all we are are these meat machines, then, then there, you can see why, how very quickly that becomes like, why have any morals? Why have any ethics, right? It's dog-eat-dog world. I want to make sure my tube gets nice and fat, right? Like it, no tube means anything, is no more important than any other tube, right? Because they're all doing the same thing, shoving shit in one end, shitting it out the other and reproducing. And that's not that great a thing. Like that's not, that's not some great achievement, some great accomplishment. I mean, the fact that we're having right. intellectual conversations so that what? So we could shove shit in one end and shit it out the other and make more tubes. So we can have some fun along the way. Yeah. Like, so, and so that's why that for me, that has been for, for me personally, it's been a significant contribution to my life to have these experiences of expanded consciousness where the substance and significance of, of the self, of, of, of existence, of the world became so much more than the physical apparatuses we perceive. You know, whether it's a planet or a donkey or an elephant or a human, doesn't matter. You know, you, when, you, when you have that expansion of consciousness, you see the intelligence and the life and the mind and the consciousness that's present in everything from every blade of grass to of course, every human being. And there's, and then those, those morals, those ethics, those virtues, they do become extraordinarily significant because you see a more, you have a more substantive view of the nature of life than you had before. And that's why I, I, I theorize that religion was born out of these experiences. You know, a bunch of people drop a bunch of mushrooms. They have this experience. They go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Shit's important. <laughs> this stuff's important. It's significant. What we're doing here is meaningful, you know. And so they. So is that why, is that that why morals and virtues and things are important to you? What, what do you mean why they're important so, to me? What's, so you what's said, so, I'm saying that what's, that's what has you see it. Now I'm not saying that's why they are. I'm saying if you, no, you don't were saying see that once that, you get those experiences, right. You can then see it. No, 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 no. You can see it. You can see that it's important because if right. you, again, if why, you go is back, why is it important? Because of the substantive nature of life, because there is more to the individual than being a meat machine that shoves shit in one end, shits it out the other, and makes more tubes, right? It's, it's, it is more significant than that. It, it, there is a lot more to the individual, to life, to society, to culture, to family. Like, there, there are these, these yeah. energetic bodies in this dance creating this beautiful, harmonious thing we call the universe, right? The one song that... All of this play together. And so that that's what, for me, that's what can have you see the importance of 
virtues and principles and morals and ethics. It's not what makes, because you could you could have this eye-opening, expa- uh, consciousness-expanding experience and these realizations about the universe and still choose to be a completely destructive asshole. You know, <laughs> you're not necessarily going to, but but that's what I, I was would, getting at. Because for yeah. me, I got to those level. What I what I observed, what I learned from a lot of these states. Right. is my role in the dance, my role in the song, the orchestra. I'm like, oh, I'm contributing these aspects of myself here and here and here and here and here and here and here. I don't want to be contributing these things. Mm-hmm. So it's like all of a sudden I'm noticing what it is that I inspire and perpetuate in the world. And it becomes important to me to do that intentionally. Instead right. of just being like, meh, fuck it. Like To me, that's where the the importance comes from mm-hmm. is the understanding of that role. Otherwise, yeah, like if really anything that I did didn't affect anything, if this was really just a simulation and it's all inside my head, I'm like, why not go rob a bank? Why not hold somebody at gunpoint? Why not like act as if this is grand theft auto? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and unfortunately, I think a lot more than we would like to admit. That's the state that a lot of people are in. Is that there? They there is no purpose or meaning in life for them, and there is no more substantive side to life than their physical experience. Right. So that's why you see so many people pursuing, you know, immediate gratification. Right. And this is. This is telling of where we are as a culture, psychologically speaking, um, as a society, right? That we are, we have lost, I would say, as as a species, or we are losing as a species, a, a connection to the more substantive sides of ourselves, to the more substantive aspects of the universe itself. That so let me ask you can, this. Go away. Go ahead and finish your thought if you want. Okay. No, it's gone. You er- <laughs> you erased it. <laughs> um. So, children, uh-huh. they almost always inherently have like this balance between left and right brain or physical, non-physical. You have kids remembering past lives and things that you know right. from being born up until whatever five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. I don't know. But there's a certain point where that becomes kind of switched off. Like it atrophies or something at some point. And for me, I've looked at this as a left brain, right brain thing where we've put so much emphasis on. You want to make you want to make everything you want to make everything right brain, left brain, Gingy. (laughs) Not everything. Everything. You want to make everything left brain, right brain. So follow me here. No, if I can't. Focus as so soon as much, you said left brain, right brain, you lost me. I'm like, no, it has nothing to do cancel, with it. Cancel, delete, delete. If we focus so much on linear thought and individuality mm. and that whole direction of consciousness, what happens to the unification and the psychic and the other things that I see disappearing? as a child grows older. It's, to me, it's not as if they're, we're losing it as a, as a people. 
It's that we're focusing in one direction as opposed to both. What do, what do you well, think? That's, that's part of the domestication of children into becoming what we are. Um, we domesticate children to, to reflect what currently is the acceptable model of a human being. And so, of course, you know, children who are engaged in their imagination and, you know, start speaking from the place of, you know, experiences outside the physical, you know, whether it be about, oh, my, you know, the big blue dinosaur. And then mom's like, there are no big blue dinosaurs, Joey, you know, and so it, you're domesticating the child to, to let go of all of that, that other side of themselves, right? That, that the perception beyond the physical world, you're, you, I mean, not necessarily physically, but you're beating it out of them through the process of domestication, right? So look at public schools. You can, I mean, you could, you could say it's the fault of public schools, but even a person who's going to homeschool their children, they're still going to domesticate those children to be a reflection of them, which could be in many cases, even more detrimental than public school. You don't know what kind of crazy people are raising that kid. You know, they may be off their rocker and have a very skewed view, whereas at least in public school, they're going to be around, you know, 30, 40 other kids. There's many teachers they're going to have many experiences with over many years. So there's a lot more for them to use as stimulus in the, in the forming of themselves, who they are in their way of thinking, right? Whereas you limit them to mom and dad and everything comes from mom and dad for 18 years. Can you imagine how messed up that person might be? You know, Dude, I've met kids like that. Homeschool right. kids are the weirdest. <laughs> they can be, they can be yeah. now. It, That's it, all it, they ever get. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen yeah. some like 16, 17 year old kids like that. And I was right. just like, where have you been? They're like, what's <laughs> rap music? I'm like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's it, it it's a domestication process. So, but realistically, we can't even pretend to change that until we start changing the adults in the equation, because you're not going to raise a child outside of that. You're not going right. to raise a child outside even of if you what tried. society accepts. Yeah, no. It, even, even if you if, tried, my dad says monkey see, monkey do. Right. Yeah, and you got. If you've been around enough kids, you know that there's that kids come in with their with their own baggage, right? That they they enter this world with their own baggage. I mean, I've seen kids that are just evil, like literally <laughs> evil. And you're like, what? Like how? How are you're six years old and you're evil? <laughs> like like that boggles the mind. Yeah, like just doing no, nah, dude. I, I mean worse than that like i've i've seen some uh not a lot but i've seen it i've seen serious dimension you know within a child a young child and it's like like yeah your mom's not that great but she's not that bad <laughs> like like you're you're worse than her you're worse than any anyone around you you know like this kid is kind of just taken off in his own direction so there is already within us and you have to grant that that not everything is a result of what you tell a child. You know, like, like we can blame public school all we want for the ills of society, and I would say it's definitely a huge contributing factor. However, 
I went to public school and I don't, I don't see myself as a victim of it, but I also took my education upon myself at a young age. Like I never, I never depended on a teacher <laughs> for my education. Um, and to this day, and I would, and for me, education is a lifelong thing. So I will constantly be searching and seeking and learning and reading. And, and so it's not anything I ever plan on stopping. So for someone who's never taken responsibility for their own education to then turn around and blame public schools for their ignorance, to me is it's, it's just another, another uh, form of victimization or victimhood, you know, uh, making yourself the victim to something because you choose not to take responsibility for it. So even the child who may grow up in a, in a family void of virtues and principles and things like that, they still have it within them to know these things and to choose to live their lives differently. And in fact, a lot of times they do. You know, a lot of times because they've grown up in a family void of principles or ethics or morals or whatever, they're like, yeah, I do not want to be like these people. <laughs> like, like they're clear on that. And so they, they are very intentional and deliberate to embrace another way of being in the world. So it's... Uh, I wouldn't say that the that there's like a process in place that is well actually I can't say that. I would say I, I what I was going to say is that there's not a process in place that's dehumanizing our children but there kind of is. But it's a combination <laughs> of things. You know, it's a combination of things. There's the, you know, when you take sure. into account all things and this is not in no way am I taking away the power and responsibility of each child and each person on this planet, that we each do have a responsibility and a power within ourselves to overcome any of these obstacles. However, there is a tremendous amount of energy uh, coming out in the form of media, and education, and things like that, that can be extraordinarily detrimental and dehumanizing. Yeah. And I think, and I think, I just wonder it. what it would, I just wonder what it would look like if we normalized and encouraged and even supported um, psychic experiences, religious experiences. Again, like you have to be really, you have to do this at the cultural level. Let's say, you, okay, let's say, Ginger, you're one of those crazy people. And yeah, you're going to yeah, do this with your would. kid, right? And so you do this with your kid, and your kid becomes extraordinarily gifted, you know, and psychic and can feel what other people are feeling like really and can, and knows what other people are thinking, right? Put them in a public school. Exactly. You put this, now you put this kid out in the public and he's freaking everyone out. Like everyone thinks he's absolutely bananas, right? They think, oh, this kid is crazy. Cause even if he knows what he knows about another, they aren't necessarily willing to admit to themselves. So they won't necessarily see this great psychic power within this child they'll see like dude you're a looney tune you're bananas your dad's gingy huh yeah he's a crackpot <laughs> you know so and 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 that's what you'd be setting them up for because there is no acceptance of that scenario, or acknowledgement of it worst case scenario they end up with a reality show telling fortunes to people or <laughs> with a or with a psychic hotline that's worst case scenario Best case, they work for the government. 
Oh God, no! Is that best case? Oh my God! <laughs> best case. Yeah. Anyway, I see your point. Really, that's at the cultural level. Yeah, and, we and, couldn't. And, you know, I mean, if, unless we fully embodied it as parents, right? And, and then taught ta- our kids. But even then, it, that's it a dead be, end road. Yeah, and it'd have to be all the kids that are going to be interacting with each other. You know. Right. Um, because all it takes is for one kid to, you know, <laughs> to blow the whole thing. Uh, you hear voices. <laughs> exactly. Like exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. I've never thought about that. I've always been curious as to what if that was mainstream. Because right. really, like, there's plenty of people that make it all the way into adulthood with these skills intact. For instance, there's a really good friend of mine. Catherine. I haven't talked to her in a while. However, when we used to hang out all the time, she told me that she used to just accidentally slip into this state where she could see the future. And she would know what's going to happen in like five minutes from now or a month from now or whatever. And there was one point where she accidentally slipped into an out-of-body experience. And she was like, whoa, cool. There I am. But here I am. And whoa. she started like exploring and venturing out. And she came back to her body later and swore that she was followed by some like dark shadow figure or entity of some kind. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, she's had this feeling that if she leaves her body again, that entity will come in and replace her and won't let her back in her own body. And or get her and, you know, not let her get back in her body and she will be forever dead or, or whatever. And so I'm like, unless Really, I could see accidentally or even intentionally getting to that level as an adult and having an experience like that or just because of the amount of fear that circulates on the planet right now, being subject to something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just it seems like it's not at this stage very effective. Now, if you understand how it well, works now, it, it de- it, yeah, it depends it, on your worldview and it depends on your worldview as well. Like let's let's go back to the mystical experience, right? The ecstatic experience. Um because of the world like right, well, because of the worldview of let's say of Hinduism, right? Where the Brahman is the ultimate reality, um what we what we would equate to God, and yet the Brahman is manifest as everything. Right. So and then it's individualized as the Atman, which we would call like the soul um, of each individual. But it's all the Brahman. It's the Brahman pretending not to be the Brahman. Right. That's the nature of physical reality. And so in that culture, when you have this mystical experience and, and you actually experience that and you feel it, and you're like, oh, my God, you know, I'm the Brahman. And everyone's like, yeah, congratulations. You got it. You know, like the, nobody really thinks anything of it because that's kind of their their view of the nature of the universe is that yeah you, we're all part of that one thing you know and that there is no real separation or difference and that it's uh, all a manifestation of that one thing however if your worldview is set in western religions and you have this mystical experience you come out and you're like i'm jesus christ you know, and everyone all of a sudden's like, no, you're a blasphemer. <laughs> you know, like, like all of a sudden you've, you've turned everyone in your Christian community against you because they don't believe you're Jesus Christ. 
And because of your worldview, you don't believe they're Jesus Christ, right? So you you think you're Jesus Christ, like you're the one. <laughs> like I'm here to save mm-hmm. y'all, right? And and everyone else, like, no, you're insane, right? And so there is no ex- so based that mystical experience has had that effect on people many times, and in Western culture because they they have no other way of thinking about it that that experience of being all being one and knowing all at that moment like your immediate go-to is well i must be jesus christ and in india you'd have no problem with that (laughs) you go to india or at least in in the hindu traditions of india and you say that you're jesus christ or shiva or or vishnu or anything else and they're like okay cool you know that of course you are (laughs) nobody thinks anything of it but you walk into a Catholic church and say, I'm Jesus Christ. And, you know, you're, you're not going to be the most popular guy at the, in the pulpit that day. So it, it's it, the worldview definitely has an effect on how we process the experience. And I feel that that's well, our why relationship. I, with Yeah. And I think that's an important. Yeah. And I think that's right. an important aspect to to look at, like our openness to non-dogmatic spirituality so what i mean by that and this is this is i'm going to refine that (laughs) i don't i don't like it as a phrase but it's 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 going to serve the purpose for right now but i will refine it into some other phrase or some other word or something but non-dogmatic spirituality means for me um having a uh, a connection to a realization of the more substantive nature of ourselves, the spiritual nature of ourselves and, and life and the universe, having purpose and meaning within ourselves, but not being caught up in the dogmatic aspects of any particular religion. Now, this doesn't mean that you sh- you, you can't be a willing participant within a religion and still have this non-dogmatic kind of spiritual view of reality. Um, like you can be a Christian, you can be a Muslim, you can be a whatever. You can be a, a, any religion that has its dogmas. But if you, if you look through the lens of this non-dogmatic spirituality, you can also recognize the wisdom and the beauty within all religion. And so then when you have these consciousness-expanding experiences you can better integrate them into your life and 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 they can become much more meaningful and much more healing you know because right now especially in our culture you know we don't look at psychedelics within and when i say our culture western culture they don't look at psychedelics as something that creates a profound state of consciousness or that has a that has the participant experiencing some profound substantive nature of reality that we don't that we usually don't have a connection to, or that we don't usually get to perceive. They look at it as some working of chemicals in the brain. Uh, It's just, you know, chemical reactions and stuff, you know? And, and so it, it is, it is denigrated. It is like, that is not an important experience. That is not a significant experience. Um, Yet a shaman, you know, would tell you, Oh no, 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 no. 
that is the most important experience, that is the most significant experiences are these mystical experiences. Um, and the fact that in, within our culture, because let's say uh, there'd be a shamanic culture that does embrace or value that, well, we would say, yeah, and they don't have running toilets, you know, as if because we've developed nuclear bombs and toilets and, you know, that we're somehow more, you know, consciously aware of the nature of reality than these, you know, Amazonian shaman, right? And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Like, yeah, okay, we've pushed physical sciences to some pretty amazing places and we've created some pretty amazing things. But no aspect of this science really tells us shit about the true nature of reality. It doesn't tell us, yeah, or consciousness. Like the fundamental questions of the nature of reality and consciousness cannot be touched by our, all the science that we have. You know? And so I think that there's, that's a great mistake to, to poo-poo on the ideas of people because they don't have uh, toilets and and uh nuclear weapons yeah uh and so i think that that and i that's kind of just something i'm putting forth as like a way for us to like because i don't i do feel like religion is beneficial for people and i do and i don't especially because it's it's cultural it can pull people together within a culture um so like in, in, in this country, you know, there's a, a vast majority of the people who are religious are Christian. And there's certain principles that Christianity is based on. And that I believe that if these people really live their lives by these principles and really believed in these principles and, and were able to create cohesive communities through these principles, which you, you can see in smaller towns, you know, go to a place like Portland and they're you know, that, that ain't the, a spiritual Mecca, you know, they're woke as fuck, but th there's no spirituality there. Um, in, in my assessment of what spirituality is in, in meaningful and purposeful life. Um, but like in a smaller town where, you know, it's pretty much, uh, culturally homogenous, you, you have people kind of coming together because they live their lives out of these principles. Not, there is no obligation to be close to, connected to, or compassionate for, or forgiving of your neighbors. It's just something you do, you know, because of that culture, you know, that, that, is, that is preserved there. And there, so there are pockets of this all over the world. Um, in the Western world, the highly technological world, we were, I think, I feel we're losing touch with, and we're, and we're seeing it in the effects that it's having on the social fabric of our society, of our, of our uh, communities, of our culture. And, and, and it's interesting because when, when I thought about, okay, I want to do this show on that mystical experience uh, based in psychedelics and, and uh, transcendental meditation and other, uh, I was clear that, because I, when I think of a subject that I, want, that I want to have a discussion with you on, I'm always looking like, okay, yeah, but I don't want to just talk about it, right? Like, I could tell you about my experience. I could tell you about the time I, <laughs> I fell out of my body. 
Um, or I could tell you about the experience when I was experiencing through seven people simultaneously, seeing through everyone's eyes, hearing through everyone's ears, feeling what everyone else was feeling. But that's not, to me, that that's not the substantial part of this conversation. The substantial part of this conversation is that aspect of the expansion of consciousness that occurs and how that can allow people to really see the importance and significance of the principles and the morals and the ethics and the virtues that are valued by all religions. Like, the, I, I mean, I don't know if there's any religions like, yeah, you shouldn't forgive other people. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't be compassionate. Like, I don't know that. Dude, even, I haven't seen even that satanic religions are all about compassion. Are they really? Well, there yeah. you go. So even, even Satanism, <laughs> they get it, right? So, so at, at some level, so that's why I brought up that, that concept, which I will refine into a better phrase, but that non-dogmatic spirituality, which will, then we can look at religion as, as no, nothing more significant or nothing uh, that, that, that needs to differentiate or separate people because it's as, it's as uh, inconsequential as like the color of your car, you know what I mean? Or the neighborhood you live in. Like your choice of religion shouldn't put you at odds with people who choose a different religion if you can elevate to that non-dogmatic spirituality. Almost like a almost like a uniform, we'll call it the you know, the URC, the uniform religious code, where it's like, all right, yeah, y'all got your own dogmas, y'all got your own beliefs, but here's a universal religious code. That we've gone through all of them. We notice you all like these morals. You all like these ethics and these virtues. They're good everywhere. So if we can all agree upon that, we can all have our own religions. And you can all do your own rituals and you can all do your own thing. As long as we recognize and acknowledge and live our lives through these principles and we value these principles. And so there needs to be a reconnection to that more substantial side of ourselves, that spiritual side of ourselves, because without it, when people see the world as, or human beings as meat machines that feed in one end and waste out the other and duplicate or reproduce more meat machines, like there is, there is no place for morals and ethics in that because it, you've really, the universe is just a machine. And people unless, are just machines. Unless so those no morals and ethics can be used to your advantage sociopathically. Oh, yeah. No, that's being done. And get what you want. Oh, yeah. That's being done. Uh, like uh, your reproductive rights. You know, oh, it's your reproductive rights. Dude, you're murdering children. Like in reality, like you could give it all the moral elements you want. You know, the reality is you're killing a child. And whether you believe you should be able to or shouldn't be able to, whatever, that is telling of where we are as a society where the moral side of the conversation is it's a right, right? That's There are people who stand in a morally superior place that because I feel that this person should have this right, that it's okay to kill a child, you know? And... Or the, kill in general. Like, really, if you went back to war, the morals the and war. principles, yeah. like, what do you think about killing? Yeah, well, war. That's the war, thing that I always have. War had is justified through, through morals and ethics, right? 
So it is, it, it is a, I'd say that's, that's why elevating again, it's, it is, it is a, it is a thing of consciousness because there's no way you can have an experience of exp, uh, expanding your consciousness beyond the, the mind of the self and see a bigger picture and experience the the oneness or the unity or the the relevance and sub, substantiveness of each individual and every plant and animal and everything else you can't be in that experience and and then morally you know or or I should say use your morals and ethics for means of manipulation which is what's which is what's being done primarily in our society if there is ever a conversation on morals or ethics it's a it's typically some form of manipulation to justify some immoral act well something that you you pointed out earlier in this call was that it's not just the one experience that ah uh, I'm enlightened and now I can go into no it doesn't work like that it's right. the repeated experiences right it's having one deep meditation, and then all of a sudden that makes sense of a mushroom trip you had when you were a teenager. And that right. makes sense out of this out-of-body experience that happened. The accumulation of all of these experiences clicks something. Right. And they all Absolutely. sort of, it's like, like a chiropractic session where you go in there and it pops your back and he's like, well, your upper back is not going to align. I need to do some massaging and they loosen up muscles and kind of like, make it malleable again, then pop. Okay, cool. Then we got it. And sometimes you got to go back over and over and over to continue to get your whole spine in alignment. It's the right. same way with this one session yeah. ain't going to do it. No, it's got to be something that and that's reinforces. Why, with it. And that's why it's seen as a medicine by the shamanic cultures. It's not, it's definitely not a cure all. It's not like, Oh, you've done it once you're done. You're good to go. You're now an enlightened being. Um, the reality is, it's it is a medicine. It's it's it, a window, like you get yeah, to look works, inside what's really it, going on. Exactly, and it works best when you use it that way. When you're like intentional that in whether it's you're going to do transcendental meditation or whether you're going to drop some mushrooms, you're intentional about the work you are going to do on yourself to open yourself up to to remove your own barriers, right? To allow yourself to forgive, right? So to, to be intentional with it and to see it as that, as like a medicine that can That's be key. integrated into your life is to, for, and it's really just a tool to support you in aligning the things in your life, right? You could do it without it, right? Um, but it's, such a Kickstarter. It's like meditation, right? Um, uh, well, for me, it's like the the aspects of seeing everything as one and understanding not the different pieces of the world, but yep. the relationships between the world. <coughs> you can't you can't look at everything individualistically after you've got an experience of that, like everything being different okay. aspects. Now, now that's but that's the thing. Because and this is why I have such sure. a hard time with the woo-woo talk about we're all one, man. It's all one. It's all one thing. I guess I should qualify that because I'm well, really not. No, trying no, no. To you did. You, no, no, no. <laughs> you spoke into it with the experience of it because that's the best way you can articulate it. Is because in in 
correct me if I'm wrong, that is a completely inadequate explanation for the experience. So Which part? I had an experience of oneness. Does that really encompass? Does that really convey that experience? No, no not <laughs> even really close. Doesn't. So it's like it's the closest way, thing you can, or the closest articulation you can get to in words to try to put this experience together. But it's it is so. It can be incredibly life changing, incredibly opening, and incredibly insightful, and like. Because if you if you say that, imagine this: saying it to someone it. who's never had the experience, and how how kooky it sounds, how corny. No, I was there. <laughs> I was always there, like, uh, like, yeah, okay, we're all one, we get it. But yeah. in my mind, I was always like, yeah, we're all one, but we're also not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm me, you're you. We're all people, but we're different people. Like that's the. That's the conundrum of this human well, it's, experience. Well, it's, is it's that again, yes, you were individuals, but also we're not. We're also the same people. There's, we have more in common than we don't. Right. So it's where do I want to focus on? Do I want to focus well, on our differences or our similarities? This is why I have That's that distinction. This is why I have that okay. distinction on truth and fact. Right. Like there is truth, but you can never speak it. Right. So there's the truth of that experience you had. But when you talk about that experience, that is not the truth because it cannot convey that experience, right? That's why every but experience you, is you unique. Can, you, yeah, you can state facts, right? You can state facts. You can say, well, you know, I ate the mushrooms at this time and at this time they really started to hit. And at this time, you know, like you could, you could speak into it and you can make factual deductions about the experience, but you can't convey the experience. And that for me is what truth is, is the experience that you're having. As soon as you try to articulate it, whether it's through speech, through writing, any symbol, right? Which speech and writing are symbols. They're symbolic. They're trying to convey a concept, an idea. An experience. But they're wholly inadequate, especially for that experience that you're talking about, that oneness. We're all one, man. I'm, I'm one with the plants. Oh my God, me and the tree, we're like this, man. You know, it's... Uh-oh, got a battery dying over here. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's wholly inadequate wholly inadequate to actually conveying the experience so yes that i is... wish we had this conversation at the very beginning because it goes to the heart of this saying we're right. all one is complete woo woo like misleading nonsense and i've gotten to a, a place where i understand it completely different than mm -hmm. the woo woo concepts just like ego everyone's like oh man kill the ego ego sucks ego's bad no it's all you fucking know is ego. <laughs> you don't know anything outside of that in the level of conscious focus that, that an individual is at right now. Right. Like outside ego, there is no linear thought. There is no well, there, linear anything. There is no individual. Like, well, there is no individual self. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done with my rant. Well, that, and, but, and that, and that may be, uh, you see that? You see the light? Yep. I have a light dying over here. One of my studio lights is dying. I forgot to plug it in. It's running on a battery. Um, so, and, and that, I think, 
I think that the individual experience in so much as, because you do have that outside of the individual experience, right? It is beyond the individual mind. That's, that's why it's, it, it's so expansive and why it's so profound is that you get, you have an experience of mind that ain't your own, you know? Um, and that individuality, that individual aspect, because we, we taught, we touched on this a little bit in beyond the matrix, right? Where it's like, yes, you can get to that state, right? You can get to this state of being beyond the matrix, but you're wholly dysfunctional there. <laughs> like, like you can't operate in the physical world there. Right. And that's the same thing here. Like, and that's, and that's why it's, that's why and this, I guess, kind of speaks into the, the duality you brought up at the beginning of they're having that experience of, of outside the self, beyond the self, of, of, a, of, a, of a higher mind, if you will, of a greater consciousness. Um, you can't operate there. <laughs> you, can't, you can't live a day-to-day life. You can't, you know... Uh, work at a job and have kids and raise a family like that. You can't do that. Can't in pay that your space. bills. Yeah. You're definitely going to, well, I heard there, I heard bills are a fundamental human right. <laughs> or no, what was it? No. Uh, uh, human rights violation. Human rights violation. That's right. <laughs> bills are a human rights violation. Um, I love that. I, I love that idea. Um, it, it's just so profoundly idiotic. Um, but uh, (laughs) my choices are, you know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, however, the, so there is that power in being able to enter these states, to have these experiences. And, and then, because we said that's in that place, you can do work on yourself that you can't, that is much more difficult to do in the focused consciousness, right? In the individual consciousness in that state that we hover in 99.9% of the time, you could do work on yourself and you could become more aware of things and you could become enlightened to things and it's, and it all works. You don't need it. However, uh... it's tremendously powerful to have that experience outside of the self, you know, that is, that can profoundly impact the life within the individual self and impact it in a positive, beneficial, and healing way. I, I just had the realization, as you were saying, yes, you can you can go into the perspective, I'm going to call it, mm-hmm. of we're all one, and you can live there. It's just not effective. It's not productive. Right. It's You're wholly dysfunctional in that mm-hmm. state. As far as what it takes to live on this planet day to day in physical reality. And it just clicked in my mind thinking what's happening in all of the politics and stuff that we've been talking about for the last, however many calls we've done, at least it's come up once every call is that us identifying people as a group is Mm -hmm. a way of saying, look, all these people are one and it in itself is not and it's dysfunctional. It's not a way to effectively operate on this planet because we're also individuals. Mm. So while, yes, it's good to understand 
we have way more in common than what we don't. We're all one people. We're all one population. We're all on one planet. Mm-hmm. But we're also individuals. And if we're focusing on being individuals, we have a much more potent effectiveness and power to operate and and partner with each other and operate Absolutely. as one. Yeah. Like you couldn't take a basketball team and say, <laughs> all right, guys, you know, you're all one. So move is one. No, they each yeah. have their role, their position, their own logic and thought process and everything that comes into being an effective partner. Right. Being and an effective and, teammate. And that's why I right. pointed at these philosophies as insidious and toxic is because they say outright that there's no importance or significance in the individual. There is only the group. There's only the group identity. The group identity is all that matters and all that counts. And, and that's why there's no importance on, uh, on an individual's rights. You know, like, well, it's the same the other way, too. You have to blend the two together. You can't have all collective or all individual because they're both dysfunctional. No, you, they're both you, inoperable. No, but like you said, you have to start with the individual. Like, if you don't recognize an individual, you, uh, you will never have a functioning society. Yeah. You know, that to, to, treat, to, to not recognize an individual and to only treat individuals by a group identity or to only recognize them as a group ident- identity or to only give them rights as a, based on a group identity is incredibly uh, toxic towards the creation of a meaningful and cohesive community, you know, because the community and, and so I'm not saying that, yes, individual rights trump the needs of a community. No, they, like you said, they do go hand in hand. That your rights are also the rights of others, right? And, to, and, and unless you recognize that and that every individual holds those same rights, then you don't have the, uh, a cohesive community, right? So it's, it, they do go hand in hand. But to eliminate the individual, then you don't have recognizing the inherent value of the individual, you know, and that I feel like, I mean, I, if we're already there, (laughs) we, I feel that there's already an aspect of our community that already uh, devalues the individual to quite, to, to quite a degree, especially of men, right? I mean, we've been in the business of dehumanizing men for centuries. So the, the dehumanization, the devaluation of 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 men or of human beings or of the individual makes atrocities really easy. You know, it makes the elimination of entire populations really easy because you no longer recognize the individual. And if all you recognize is a group, then then all you have to do is demonize the group and then the masses, the mob has no problem doing away with that group because we don't see them as yeah. as individuals. Right. We see them as a collective that like, oh, they're all bad. <laughs> they do. Yeah. They do this and that. They speak this language. They practice this religion. Well, they're bad. And we must and get separate somehow from us. Yeah, exactly. Not part of our group. They're not part of our groups. <laughs> you know. All right. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, 
Okay, let me check my list here because I didn't. Yep, I feel like we hit everything. I mean, we didn't go deep into the guided experience, but we touched on it. And I think we brought it around to where I wanted to bring it around to, which was how can these mystical experiences, um, either induced by transcendental meditation, psychedelics, um, religious rituals, whatever, however you come about these experiences, um, I believe that they're incredibly important right now. Because in my assessment, there is a spiritual crisis in our society, in our culture. And in order to overcome the spiritual crisis, I feel that people need to get in touch with the spiritual aspects of themselves, the spiritual nature of life, the spiritual nature of the universe, so that they can, so that we can um, start living from a place of virtues and morals and ethics and principles, which I believe if we really sat down and like, you know, war gamed it out, we would all be on, in, in alignment with very much the same principles and morals and ethics and things like that. Um, totally agree. <clears throat> and it's extremely important to identify the connection between like all of this awesome stuff that can come from not only religious experiences, but also psychedelics and shamanism, spiritual experiences, dreams, random expansions of consciousness, like a near-death experience. It's important because oftentimes, especially in the U.S., we demonize, like we, it, right now it's illegal to eat mushrooms, to buy mushrooms, to grow mushrooms, at least the uh, psilocybin version, yeah. or peyote or anything else. Unless, like there's a, there's a church in Florida, I think, I just watched some there's a documentary called like the wellness industry or healing or something like that on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And there's a group in Florida that they do, I want to say ayahuasca ceremonies and they give everybody tea and they drink it and they're able to do it because it's protected under like a religious act of some sort yeah. where as long as they're a church and practicing the thing, they can all get together and do ayahuasca and they keep getting attacked by saying like, well, so-and-so under your care, fell down the stairs and died. And so what you're doing is bad and what the, what you're giving people is bad. And they went in and interviewed the guys and they were like, yeah, he did a session and you know we tried to get him to stay, but it had been several hours and we're not a prison. We had to let the guy leave on his own accord. And a couple days later, he tripped and fell down the stairs, not intoxicated under ayahuasca or anything at all. And so it's like, there is this attempt to sort of keep individual psychic type of experiences mm -hmm. out of the masses which oh, yeah. is important to understand that we've, we've made it legal because every single experience psychically religiously or, or otherwise is completely individualized to the individual person there is no exact same shared experience now there can be like you talked about you were experiencing through other people but but they weren't, necessarily, they weren't necessarily experiencing me experiencing through them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's not, so it's not in that sense. So you had your own experience from your own perspective. Right. So you had right. your own experience from your own perspective. Now, and and, and that's not to say, but that's not to say that people don't have shared experiences because they do. I've had shared experiences with people where two of us had the exact same experience of going to the exact same place 
seeing the exact same things. And I mean, and that was actually one of the most profound experiences I had in my life. And it was nothing, no meditation, no psychedelics. Like we were just having a conversation and it was as if we dropped into a, a wormhole or something and we were somewhere else, you know, and, and, and I mean, it was one of those consciousness expanding moments where it was, you're, you know, there, it was like being on a psychedelic or like having a near-death experience where all of a sudden there was this expansion of awareness and consciousness. And, and so we had that feeling and, and the same thing with the time warping that you experience oftentimes yeah. in these, in these states, it, it was, all that was there, all that was present, present, except there was nothing to stimulate it. There was nothing to set it off. There was, there was no substance that we took in order to get there except for having a conversation <laughs> but now, <laughs> did you really have this did you really have the same experience or did you yeah. experience the same thing uh well yeah we didn't have the same experience because we were each having our own experience but we and that's the point i wanted we to had the out. same we had the same account of the experience like oh my god right. like because it, while it was happening we we weren't talking about it you know what i mean it was it was it was like it was uh it was interesting because it was like you dropped into the state and like i said it's like it's timeless right it's this timeless moment and and what and and i i'm we weren't talking i'm pretty sure we had stopped talking <laughs> i don't remember saying anything in that experience and i don't remember her saying anything in that experience but we dropped into this experience and we were in a room of people, a room full of people. They were all gone. Everyone in the room was gone. Like it was just white light surrounding us. Um, and just, you know, the timelessness of it. And it was, there was, uh, I would say the equivalent of years of experience happening in that, I was, get, it was like getting a download of so much about this person who was sitting across from me, like just like taking it all in, you know, and uh, something that if you were to sit down and try to tell me everything I was getting in that moment, it would have taken you months or years to tell me all this, you know what I mean? And it's just hitting me, right? And at the same time, just everything and how it was happening around us. And then whoosh, we're back in the room. Everyone else is there and we're both like, <laughs> did that just happen? <laughs> did you see that? Because we had to confirm with each other, like, wait, was that just me? Like, did, <laughs> did I just have an aneurysm? Like what happened? You know? Um, but we both, because we were both in that state of disbelief that it had just occurred. Like, wait a minute, that, that doesn't happen. You know, you don't just drop yep. out of reality with someone <laughs> and then go. That's back. actually the first time I've heard that happening with anybody. I've never heard that repeated anywhere. I'm sure oh, yeah. it happens, but oh, I'm sure yeah. it does. I'm sure it does. <laughs> like I've I've had many little versions of that, but right. not like like you've explained. But it's yeah, it's no, it's important for me to bring up this point that every individual is having their own experience. Just like you can go to a movie, watch the same movie, sit next to each other, still individual experiences. You can right. both hold each other's hands and jump out of an airplane at the same time, have two totally different experiences. It's the same way with, with psychic or religious or any of these other experiences. Mm -hmm. You could be 
both take mushrooms and you sit next to each other and you have a great time, you're going to have two totally different experiences. Yeah. And that's important. Actually, I did have an experience on LSD of uh, psychokinesis. Have you ever had that? Or telekinesis. What's, what's the difference? Telekinesis is <laughs> right. psychokinesis. Are you moving shit? Is that? Mm, yes. PK. Okay. Yeah. What's the, what's the, when you talk in each other's heads? So, uh, I think that's, uh, telekinesis, right? Telecommunication. Yeah. Okay. So, but that's not how it works. So just so you know, so we had this experience and we both had it cause we talked about it later when we could articulate again. Um, but it, it, okay. Again, words can never articulate an experience, right? And this experience is so beyond words, but I'm going to try my best. Okay. So it's not like I send words over to your head and you get them in your head and you send words over to my head and I get them in my, that's not how, that's not how or it I'm, works. I'm thinking in your brain. That's not how it works. Right. That's not how it works. <laughs> it was, the, and again, this is, this isn't a, I'm not giving you a physical representation. This is a metaphor of what was occurring. Okay. Imagine a whirlpool, right? Like a vortex. Okay. And you're sharing this, this vortex. You're both, it's like connecting the two of you, right? And you can toss out entire ideas, entire concepts, fully formed concepts into the vortex. It just kind of goes into the vortex and you can pick them up out of the vortex as they come by. So you're both tossing things in and you're both seeing what the other's tossing in. Does that, does that convey kind of what it's like? Um, it's not, like I said, it's not words. My experience has been different, but yeah, it's not like words. It's not like it, 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 it's not like words at all. There were no words to this. Now I may have used words in my mind to, uh, to articulate the concept that, that I, that came out of the whirlpool, but it, it's, it's not like he, it's not his words. He threw right. the entire idea in there. He threw the entire concept in there. I picked it up and gave my own words to it. Now, was there actually like a feeling of putting down and picking up? It, again, I, I don't want you to take that. that that's the metaphor. Okay. Okay. So no, it's not like we were sitting. We were both sta- sitting in front of a whirlpool, throwing things in. <laughs> that's not how I was working. So that's that's, that's the part that's the that metaphor. Me yeah, that's the that's metaphor the part that catches me up because in the okay. So and the, and the reason and the, re- this. the reason I used the whirlpool it was because as soon as okay. he put something in, it was there until I until I grabbed it. You know what I mean? Until I engaged it. Right. So it was like. He's throwing all this shit in. I'm throwing all this shit in. And then it's like, as soon as you engage it, it's like, okay, you've taken it out of the whirlpool. You know what I mean? Like, boom, you engage yeah. it. It's out of the whirlpool. So it's like, you. so it, but again, it wasn't physical in any way. I'm like, this is my best but, attempt to articulate it in metaphor that I can. So that was my really experience of telekinesis. It's really interesting that you could like remove it from the space. Or yeah. engage with it and it engage it. Yeah, I don't know if remove is the right word. And it I don't know if disappear is the right word. But once you engaged it, it no longer distorted what else was in the space. You know what I mean? It was no it was like, okay, I've I've engaged that. So it 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 it's not there anymore. But again, you gotta remember this is metaphor. There wasn't an actual space where ideas were floating around in a whirlpool. It was mm. that was the experience that 
pop, 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 throw all this stuff out there. And it's there until you engage it and you engage it and you engage it. And each piece that you engage, it's like you're, you're narrowing the field to the point where it's like, Could okay, you ignore pieces of it? Could you ignore pieces of it? No. Well, you wouldn't know if you did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like well, you if you saw it coming and you're like, Anna. No, no, no. See, you're, see, you're getting caught up in the metaphor. You're making the metaphor okay, into okay. the physical reality. There, were, there was no whirlpool, Gingy. There were no idea balls floating in that whirlpool. <laughs> this is all metaphor. It was, it was something was in the space. Oh, God, see, and because I'm trying to use these concepts of space and things like that, so it, it draws a picture of there being physical space, but there wasn't. Um, it, was, it was just engagement, you know? And but what I what I was engaging with was what he put into the space, and and what he engaged with was what I put into the space. But you're still fully aware of what you put in. So like that's why I'm saying it's like a whirlpool because you know it's there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's and again, not that you're physically seeing it, but it's this it's this consciousness that you're sharing at that moment, and you know what's there. You know what you put in. You know what he well. You know what he put in in the sense that if when you if when and if you engage with it, then it's there. You know what I mean? Like, and again, it, it, it was many hours before we were actually able to articulate that experience. But it was the same experience, or the the but what what was the wording you used before? As opposed to same experience, it was uh, uh, experiencing the the same phenomena. You know, we weren't having the exact same experience. Oh, you weren't I, having the same experience. But yeah, were I was putting in my ideas. Yeah, I was putting in my ideas, getting his ideas. He was putting in his ideas, getting my ideas. So, and that, and that's why I'm saying ideas too, because it wasn't like words. It wasn't like you throw in a sentence and then he picks up the sentence from the beginning to the end. You know what I mean? It, was, it, it wasn't word-based at all. It was conceptual. It was like a fully formed idea or concept that you so, project and then they engage. Yeah, it's, Hermetics, it's interesting. It's uh, very interesting. Or Hermeticism, they, uh-huh. they have a word for this, and they call it lingua verde, which literally translates to the green tongue. Green word? Or oh. green tongue. <laughs> well, green word? Green language? Green tongue. Green tongue, yes. Uh, and they call it like the, the language of nature. And people that I've had teach me how to communicate with animals or plants, it works in the same way mm-hmm. as this telekinesis. But for me, it's it's less of like a shared conversation, like this, the conversation or the relationship or whatever is not really shared. It's it's more like whatever someone's trying to communicate, I can feel that they're communicating. And what I get is an impression. And that impression is as vivid as like. I just finished reading this book. And I know every word that's in it to whatever degree I choose. And if I look at it, I can remember all the details of every sentence of that entire book instantly. So if somebody is like, that's okay. So that's me about their that's, day, that's is the what idea. I'm calling these, these concepts that we threw idea in. balls. Yeah. The idea balls, because it was, that's what it was. It was fully formed in and of itself in that, but it's, it, it's not it, like it, a concept though. No, no I, that again. It's that's like my I, that's whole me. experience. Gingy, don't get caught up in me trying and me trying to articulate this. What you just explained with the book is a better explanation of it because it's okay. like you've it's like you've digested the entire book. So yes, a book isn't one idea or one concept, right? Mm-hmm. 
Right. So that's what this was. I, I, again, I'm just, this isn't something I can relate to in real life. I don't have this experience every day. I don't, so it's, it's hard to articulate with whirlpools and concept and idea balls and whatever else, you know? And so it's my best attempt, but like what you just described with the book and what you called an impression. See, as soon as you said the word impression, I'm all, no, it's much more substantial than that because of my definition of impression. I'm like, no, 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 it's not an impression. It goes way beyond impression. But then when you used the description of the book and like, I've read this whole book and I, and I know the narratives and the stories and the relationships between the characters, that's what it was. Okay. Sure. That's what you got. You All were able to the throw aspects. these out. Yeah. You were able to throw these out <laughs> like, like it was a ball, like, boom, there, <laughs> take that lifetime. You know what I mean? Like just, <laughs> right. boop. You know, and, uh, and, or, I mean, like, it, it would be like, oh, you've never seen that movie? Here you go. <laughs> Here's the entire movie, the entire <laughs> understanding of it, all the interaction between the characters, you know. Um, just, it was, a, it would be as if in. downloads were instant. You can go yes. online and be like, what's that book like? Click. Boom. Oh, nice. Got it. Exactly. Got it. Whole like thing. the Matrix. Yeah. Ex- like the Matrix, with, but faster. With no, <laughs> yeah. And, and with no forgetfulness or, <laughs> or cloudedness. Is like with such immense clarity of every detail. Yeah. Like I, I was, I tell people, it's like I knew, I could, I could know in that instant, like if I looked at a book, what the story was, who the characters were, what information got left out, where the pages were made, what trees were cut down, and when by who to make the paper, <laughs> and who bound the books. Like that level of detail, it right. all exists in what I'm calling an impression, which is really just this ball of sensation which could be mental <laughs> okay. or emotional i think i think really at this Too point much. we're just yeah we're we're proving Feeding our point <laughs> we're just trying to we're proving we're our point that to... you cannot articulate these experiences in any kind of meaningful way um so everybody yeah. else and is going to be like the hell okay, are these two you guys have just ran in circles and yeah. none of it made any sense no because you can't articulate it so it's uh, it's absolutely essential to have the experience um, Any takeaway is every experience is at the individual level. You can have shared experiences, collective experiences, but it's each has an individual experience level to it. That was the point I was trying to make because that's important. You can't run to somebody else and be like, what does my dream mean? It wasn't for them. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, not without some context. <laughs> you know, you, they can I be mean, like, well, you, you can have some insights. Yeah, you can have some insight on the dream, but you you definitely have to create some context around the characters and stuff. So. Like, oh, it was spiders. Yeah, you must you must have some fear inside of you or something. Like, like no, oh, I, I love ha- spiders. I love spiders. <laughs> I got a tarantula at home. Yeah. <laughs> they just kick it around the house. I don't even I don't even keep them in a tank. <laughs> uh, that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, alrighty. I think we I think we did it. I think uh, I think I hit all the points I wanted to hit. I even hit on the good trip, bad trip through a segue uh, on the the dude who went to hell. So, uh, alrighty, Gingy. As always, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Can't wait to do it again. High five. Good job. Talk to you soon, my friend. Yeah, man. Have a good night. You too.